Friendiversary by Jen Moss, Part 1 of 3. Heloise Garland stared out the window of her office at the University of British Columbia. From up on the 10th floor of the Buchanan Tower, she was above the tree canopy and could usually see the North Shore Mountains, but not today. And though it was morning, the streetlights were still on and low clouds hung over the landscape. It was snowing again, this time in earnest, which was fine by her. Heloise loved snow, the way it cleaned everything up, making the landscape look monochromatic, less cluttered, more deliberate-seeming. How nice it would be if things really were that black and white. Environment Canada had issued a weather warning for what the rest of the country called a couple centimeters of snow, but in hilly Vancouver, even a dusting wreaked havoc on the roads. The university had officially declared a snow day, which meant there were hardly any students at school. The buses weren't running, as only vehicles with four-wheel drive could make it up the long hill to the campus. Small groups of first-years scuttled by with determined looks on their faces, clutching their reusable coffee mugs as they braved the elements between their residence buildings and Starbucks. A snow day. Heloise remembered what that had meant back when she was a student. Released of all responsibility, forced by the weather itself to sleep in. You might stay home and snuggle under a blanket, or maybe bundle up and go for a walk in the cold. That sense of freedom, of stolen time, beautiful. How long had it been since she'd had that feeling? Heloise sighed. No rest for the tenured. The pressure to make her deadlines far outweighed the snow's magic. It had been a rough start to the term, and she was far behind in her correspondence. If the snow offered her any gift, it was simply the reprieve from having to lecture, the time to clear out old emails and actually finish a thought. As the newly appointed chair of gender and women's studies, she was under a lot of strain. The last person to do the job had run off with a grad student, leaving behind a colorful miasma of controversy. As a result, all her decisions were closely scrutinized by committee. And while she understood the reasons for such caution, she hated it. She felt hobbled. Nothing was to be done if it could not be done strictly by the book, which meant that almost nothing got done at all. Heloise was halfway through yet another memo on the new campus sexual assault policy. She was finding it totally impenetrable and had begun to wonder if that was the secret intent of its authors. Restless, she decided to take a quick peek at Facebook. She did so with no small amount of shame, knowing what she knew about privacy, internet predators, and corporate agendas. Her students had long since migrated to Snapchat and Instagram, they said Facebook's days were numbered, and she believed them mostly. Then again, it was one of the only ways she kept in touch with her family back in France. Her mother constantly posted photos of life in Argenteuil, the village outside Paris where Heloise had grown up. These days, it was really more of a suburb, but she liked seeing the neighbor's latest kitchen renos or pictures of her sister's growing family. Heloise sighed again. Her sister, Amélie, had married a local car salesman, and they'd bought an old farmhouse on his earnings, neither of their parents being of much help financially. They'd just had their third child, a girl. Heloise had been abroad for many years, so she could no longer be sure of anything happening back home, but Amélie certainly seemed happy, being a stay-at-home mom. 
At least she looked it in the pictures. She and her husband appeared to have lots of friends. They celebrated every anniversary and Valentine's Day with an uncomplicated enthusiasm, grinning at the camera in various restaurants, posing good-naturedly over plates of bœuf bourguignon. For weekend entertainment, as far as Heloise could tell, they packed up the kids and drove around to antique car shows. There was shot after shot of their one-year-old son Remy at the wheel of different classic cars. Today there was one of the little boy waving from the window of a dark green 1959 Fasselvega, HK500. His mop of soft, blonde, curly hair reminded her of her own son at that age. She wondered if her sister knew that was the same kind of car Albert Camus had died in. She doubted it. Emily had never been one for the existentialists. Heloise rubbed her eyes. How long had she been staring at the screen? Too long. She was turning into one of her more zombified students, getting sucked into social media and wasting valuable time. The light in her office had shifted and outside the snow was easing up a bit. It was supposed to turn to rain by tomorrow. Not much of a prediction, really. Snow never lasted here. Scrolling down, she noticed her friend in Toronto, right on cue, had reposted the Beaverton headline, Disaster in Vancouver! Three inches of snow causes real estate freeze. Just as Heloise was about to close Facebook in disgust, a new post caught her eye. She squinted at the screen, and for a moment she couldn't breathe. What she saw made the room suddenly seem to shrink. There, looking out at her from an incongruous cartoon igloo graphic, was the face of her ex-husband, Peter Abelard. In spite of everything, she had never unfriended him. He never posted, so she hadn't felt the need. Thinking about him was something she tried hard not to do, but lately she'd been catching herself at it. How odd this reminder of him would show up today, out of the blue. Technically, Peter was still her husband, as they had never actually divorced. Divorce was far too pedestrian for a man like Peter. But Facebook had no understanding of such subtleties of character. That's why right now, right here in front of her, was one of those ridiculous friendiversary videos. An algorithmic distortion of their tumultuous relationship that Facebook, in its wisdom, had blithely assigned to the category of friendship. Heloise couldn't resist playing it. And then playing it again right away. The images were random, the animation trite, but she couldn't stop looking at Peter's mischievous eyes beaming out at her. The video featured the words to a song he'd written for her called Dull is the Star. Dull is the star once bright with grace in my heart's dark cloud. Faded is the smile from my face with no joy endowed. Justly I grieve, for though it is near, hidden to me is the tender blossoming tree to which I cleave. The words were about two lovers who were gutted because they couldn't be together. Very romantic and, as it turned out, quite prophetic. Annoyingly, her eyes welled up. She hated that. Manipulative, pseudo-emotional social media crap. Despite her ability to instantly deconstruct it, God damn it, it worked. Heloise blinked furiously, trying to hold back tears. What if somebody came in and found her bawling like an undergrad? She closed Facebook like she meant it. 
bloody Peter. How like him to just pop up like this. She'd heard rumors he'd crawled out of the woodwork. After nine years of complete radio silence, he'd washed up about a month ago at his parents' place for dinner. Her mother-in-law had written to her about it, sort of guiltily, saying he'd surprise them with a visit. Some surprise that would have been. Apparently, he'd been in India the whole time, except for a brief stint in Berlin where he'd tried to sell solar panels. Trust Peter to bank on the sun in one of the grayest cities on Earth. He'd never been a practical man. After spending a couple days with his aging parents in Brittany, he'd just moved on again, saying he had other opportunities to pursue. Nobody had heard from him since, so it was back to business as usual. The only difference being that this time he'd left a forwarding email address, which her mother-in-law had passed along to her. Heloise hesitated a moment. She knew what she wanted to do, but was it wise? Fuck it. She took a deep breath and logged on to Gmail. From Heloise, lonepine at gmail.com. Hey there, Peter Abelard, you elusive ghost you. It's me, Heloise. I know blast from the past. I don't know about you, but for me, I never thought I'd speak to you again. But then, just today I got one of those nine years ago on Facebook reminder notifications. You know those things? So, normally I ignore them, but in this case, it was the lyrics to Dull as the Star. Remember one of our songs? Anyway, I thought of you playing your guitar and singing that song to me, and Lately, I've been thinking back on those days quite a lot, sort of wishing I could turn back the time. Does that ever happen to you? Dull is the star once bright with grace. <laughs> no kidding. I work on a campus surrounded by children. I feel about 100 years old these days, but we sure had some fun back then, didn't we? I guess I just hope that you're well and that you're cherished by someone and that you're happy. Yours always, Heloise. We have become the men who we wanted to marry, Gloria Steinem. Heloise pressed send, wondering briefly what Abelard would make of the Steinem reference in her email signature. Peter Abelard leaned against the wall of the men's dorm at Tassajara Mountain Zen Center. It was cold, early morning in California's Ventana wilderness, very quiet. A skimming of snow lay on the ground, and he could see his breath. The gravel road into the place had washed out two nights ago, so there were fewer short-term guests than usual tiptoeing their way to the hot spring. From his perch, he noticed a few of the monks were meeting in the kitchen before the breakfast bell probably concerned that last night's food delivery truck hadn't made it in. Couldn't get up the hill. But he wasn't worried. They'd been cut off before and would be again. One of the reasons he'd chosen this place was its relative isolation. A steep 14-mile gravel road full of switchbacks and blind corners helped keep the riffraff away. That and the waiver the monks made you sign. He picked up his guitar, strummed a few bars, a gentle chord progression that seemed to suit the morning. Didn't add up to all that much. Meandering, slow, like his life most days now. 
like the clouds he was watching over the crest of that nearby mountain. A senior monk came walking up the trail, hearing Peter's quiet strumming. He put his finger to his lips, sternly. They were supposed to be in silence all this week. Some Buddhist communities interpreted this rule to mean simply no talking, but the monks here were adamant that all forms of distraction, including music, were on the naughty list. Peter nodded at the man and put his instrument away. In the past, he would have argued the semantics of silence, but he'd learned to keep his trap shut. It was hard for him to stay still, however, so he got up and walked towards the woodpile, thinking maybe a little physical work would help distract him from his thoughts. Funnily enough, the same senior monks who frowned on reading or playing music during silent retreat made an exception for wood chopping. He supposed they needed to stay warm like everyone else. Reaching the woodpile, Peter grabbed the small axe and carefully placed a thick round of ponderosa pine on the chopping block. The wood was fresh and smelled like the mountains. He balanced it lightly with two fingers so as not to get pitch all over his hand and raised the axe above his head, brought it down. The piece split evenly with a satisfying crack. He let the smaller pieces lie where they fell, picked up another round, this time sycamore. Heave, crack, and another. Heave, crack. He started to get a nice rhythm going, enjoying the mindful mindlessness of it. It was a form of meditation that worked well for him, better than sitting with his legs crossed anyway. He often wondered if he would have stayed with the Catholic faith if they'd acknowledged wood chopping and water carrying a bit more as legitimate forms of prayer. Anyhow, the monks here at Tassahara certainly had no problem with it. They'd let him stay longer than the usual novice because he got a lot of work done around the place. It was off-season, and there were fewer juboos around than usual, so they were probably just glad for the help. The intense schedule and atmosphere of a traditional Zen Ango, or practice period, wasn't for everyone. A lot of visitors couldn't hack the monotony of the chores for that long. But Peter had spent years working off his room and board in various communities and hermitages, and had developed quite a knack for chopping wood. If you really paid attention, wood splitting contained everything you needed. The balance of two oppositional forces, stillness and motion, calm and violence, reason and passion, a metaphor for life itself. It was the closest he got to peace. Heave, crack. Heave, crack. Heave, thump. Peter paused, his rhythm broken by a knotted piece of pine that had grabbed the axe and wouldn't let go. He tried bashing through it, lifting the axe up, wood and all, and bringing it down with force. It was a tactic that usually worked, but this stubborn piece just wouldn't split. So he reached down to try and pry it apart with his hand, managing to pull the axe out in the process. But as he went to let go, his right thumb got pinched in the crack left by the axe. Instinctively, he ripped his hand back. Big mistake, because a fairly large chunk of the fleshy part of his thumb stayed lodged inside the wood. Peter clutched his now bleeding hand. Blood was pouring everywhere, peppering the snow on the ground around the chopping block. It hurt like a beast. Jesus Christ, Peter bellowed at the top of his lungs. So much for silent retreat. Inhaling sharply, Heloise looked away from her screen and back at the growing snowstorm outside. Thick white flakes now fell slowly with the air of ballerinas warming up. 
landing with unhurried ease on the concrete courtyard below. The photo of her sister's son had reminded her how far from home she really was. Then again, even if they lived in the same village, she and her sister would still be worlds apart. It was sometimes hard to understand how they could be from the same family. Heloise was the eldest and edgiest, the burnt crepe. More intense than her sister, she had always done really well at school, beating all the boys at spelling. She'd even won a regional prize for public speaking in the fifth grade. One day, right after her 13th birthday, her classroom teacher insisted on walking her home after school. She'd thought she was in trouble, and in a way, she was. Sitting at their kitchen table, her teacher told her parents she was academically gifted and should receive more focused instruction than the local school could offer. The way he said academically gifted had made Heloise, eavesdropping from around the corner, think he was talking about a disease. She requires special treatment. It would be a waste if she didn't pursue her studies at a higher level, her teacher had said with his mouth full, the crumbs of her mother's coffee cake all down the front of his sweater. Her parents had never completed high school and were generally suspicious of educators, but that day, they took her teacher's advice without question. They'd always known their eldest daughter was different. Despite Heloise's pleading, for she begged to be allowed to stay, she was sent away. Within the month, she was packed off to Paris to live with her uncle Fulbert, a deeply religious man who breathed loudly through his mouth and had skin allergies. She was enrolled right away in a large, established school where she began an in-depth study of European history and was introduced to both Latin and Greek. Heloise hated to admit it, but she supposed her teacher had been right. Paris was the place where she began to embrace her inner nerd. Her mind flourished, and she was finally able to learn among students who were as dedicated as she was. As a guardian, Fulbert was kind, but strict. A dedicated student of biblical text, he encouraged her to develop her spirituality. Though her parents were not religious in the slightest, and it was all new to her, she soon began to love the stories of ancient kings and peasants, the moral conundrums and beautiful symbolic language. Her uncle was good to her. She was relatively happy, though it was a very male household and she missed her mother. She didn't like Fulbert's son either, her cousin Anselm, who had shown no aptitude for scholarship and was rumored to move in bad circles. He no longer lived at home, thankfully, but he showed up to do laundry and wolf down Sunday dinners. Whenever her uncle was out of the room, he teased her about her changing body. Once, when she was around 16, Anselm told her uncle he'd seen her flirting with boys on the road after school. It wasn't true, of course, or if it was, it had been harmless. At that time, Heloise thought, she had literally been as pure as the new snow amassing below her office window. But Anselm's comment was just enough to make her uncle look at her differently. Soon afterwards, when she was getting dressed, he'd opened her bedroom door without warning and simply hovered there, scratching his eczema, while she awkwardly rushed to pull her school uniform down over her head. We'll have to get you out of that school, he said abruptly, and shut the door. She would never forget the feeling of shame that flooded her body at that moment. 
As an educated adult, Heloise recognized Fulbert's patriarchal reaction for what it was. Her uncle, alarmed at signs of her womanhood, had sought to clamp down on her for reasons that ranged from wanting to protect her to wanting to keep her for himself. But as a young Catholic girl in France, a teenager, she'd felt only guilt at the time, as though she had done something dirty. Fulbert announced at the breakfast table the next day that Heloise would no longer be attending classes. She was told she was extremely lucky that she was going to instead be tutored by a leading scholar, someone who had come up through the Catholic university ranks near Notre Dame de Paris. His name was Peter Abelard, and her uncle assured her he was a renowned lecturer on theology. A rising star, her uncle had said. Abelard had apparently agreed to tutor her in Latin and Greek at a reduced rate in exchange for room and board. Heloise recalled how pleased with himself Uncle Fulbert had seemed. He thought he'd found the perfect solution, a way to continue her classical studies without exposing her to corrupting influences. It was his idea that if she stayed close to home, she was less likely to be distracted by the boys her own age who her uncle said only had one thing on their minds. Embarrassed that he would even bring up that one thing in her presence, Heloise had quickly agreed to the new arrangement. What else could she do? If she fought back, she'd be deemed morally suspect. She'd secretly been angry and resentful that she was going to be cut off from her peers. That is, she was angry, right up until the moment when Peter Abelard himself appeared on the doorstep. Her uncle was out. The maid had the day off. So Heloise had answered the door, absent-mindedly, and there he stood, this impossibly good-looking young man. Dark, curly hair, crisp white shirt, and jeans. He carried a guitar and a leather book bag, bursting with heavy books, which he shifted to his hip as he stuck out his hand and introduced himself. I'm Abelard, but you can call me Peter. Heloise had tentatively reached out to shake his hand, and the shock, the shock was instant. She'd felt it resonate through her whole body, and places she hadn't known had nerve endings. I'm Heloise. Oh, I know who you are. He casually placed his book bag down and looked around the room. You home alone? Yeah, uh, my uncle is out for the afternoon, she'd stammered. Good, grinned Peter. Then we'll have some time to talk. Would you mind showing me to my room so I can put my stuff away? Heloise had nodded and asked him to follow her. She remembered clearly how as they climbed the stairs to the wing of the house where he was to be boarded, she could feel his eyes watching her. But instead of feeling uncomfortable like she did when her cousin was around, this time she felt good. She'd even arched her back ever so slightly, and Peter, fumbling, had dropped a book. At the top of the narrow staircase, Heloise opened the door to his bedroom and paused in the doorway, her back now pressed against the door frame so he could squeeze past her. As he did so, she caught her breath, for he did not rush or look away or seem embarrassed that they stood so close together, facing one another, the fronts of their bodies practically touching. In fact, quite the opposite. He lingered, just for a moment, and smiled, before pushing past her. She had met his eyes without flinching, and in that moment, 
they both knew what would happen. Well, you've got blood poisoning, said the doctor. I've ordered several rounds of IV antibiotics, and we want to keep an eye on you. Peter nodded. He'd figured as much from the red streaks running up his arm. He knew from a previous injury years ago that those streaks were bad news. The monks had fixed his thumb up as best they could at the center's first aid station. They'd managed to stop the bleeding, but then clotting and infection had set in. After a day or so, he'd developed a fever and the monks grew concerned. The road remained closed due to washout for several more days, so Peter was relegated to the infirmary, where he was fed a diet of vegetable broth. Despite the fact that he had signed a waiver, none of the monks were keen for him to die on their watch, so as soon as the road cleared, the acting Shuso, the head monk of the retreat no less, personally drove him to the hospital in the center's beat-up old Land Rover. The Shuso stayed to see Peter admitted, but then, needing to hit Costco on the way back before traffic got bad, he bowed politely, leaving him alone in his hospital bed. Want to watch TV? asked a young nurse, bustling into the room. Peter couldn't help but notice she had extremely well-developed calf muscles. No thanks. Hey, are you a cyclist? The woman turned, saw him staring. I'd like to work, she said carefully going about the business of hooking up his IV. Every day, he asked, just to keep the conversation going, to hear the warmth of a human voice through his fog of pain. When I can, yeah. You sure about the TV? Yeah, but can I get Wi-Fi in here? She leaned over his bed, neatly flicking the IV tube with her fingers, smelling of antiseptic, sweat, and something else, maple syrup? How long since he had been this close to a woman? You can, but you gotta pay for it. Never mind. You got any insurance? She asked casually, eyeing his dirty old hiking boots in the corner of the room. Because they're going to want to know your details at some point. Not exactly, he admitted. Well, is there someone you can contact? Maybe, but only if you tell me the Wi-Fi password. The nurse laughed, giving him one of those you're incorrigible looks that women give right before they do what you ask them to do. Then she whispered the password to him and left the room. Peter leaned back in his hospital gown, pleased with himself. He still had it. When the coast was clear, Peter took out his phone with his unbandaged hand, and it was only then that he saw Heloise's email. He read and reread it several times. He wrote three different responses, the first when the narcotics were strongest, begging her to come to him right away and kiss his thumb better, the second containing a short critique of Steinem's second-wave feminism from an intersectional perspective, before finally he settled on the one that seemed best under the circumstances. From Peter Abelard, steady now at hotmail.com. Dear Heloise, my one-time wife, thank you for your recent letter. I am doing well, and I trust you are too. I wish you all the best in your future endeavors. Sincerely, Peter Abelard. Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. JFK. He thought that would settle it. Best to nip these things in the bud if possible. But then he heard a ping. She had actually answered him. 
Cautiously, he opened it and read, From Heloise, lonepine at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.